Amen. If you have a Bible, please open with me to the book of 2 Peter. 2 Peter chapter 2, we'll focus our time today at verses 10 through 16, really the second half of, of verse 10 through verse 16, and we're going to be looking at the topic, the idea of the self-willed destruction of false teachers. Um, as you recall, over the last number of weeks in chapter 2, Peter is laying out this uh, really unmistakably clear picture of the work and the nature and the forthcoming judgment of those who are false teachers. These passages should be sobering to us for, for a number of reasons. Um, firstly, it, it should be difficult for us to read of this sure destruction that is coming for those apart from Christ. We should be as the Lord. The Lord desires that none would perish, but that all would come to eternal life. Of course, he will not turn a blind eye to sin. He will punish those who die apart from Christ, but he is not desiring that any should perish, and we should have the same heart as our God. We should be put on the alert as we read and study these passages, this chapter, as we understand what is pursued and propagated by these false people, naming, namely their false teaching, the, the false doctrine, the false gospel that they promote, that should put us on high alert because we've seen that they will make progress. And so we must be on the alert. And, and we also should be challenged because we look at this and we understand the depth of the battle that we are in. We are in a spiritual warfare we are fighting for the beloved truth of God's word. And so we must see this and understand that we are to take up armor and we are to go to war. So, so those are some of the challenges that we see in this passage. So let's go now to our text, 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 10 through 16. We'll pick up in the second half of verse 10. If you're able, please stand with me as we read the, the scriptures this is the inerrant and inspired and infallible word of God. It says, They're daring and self-willed. They do not tremble when they revile angelic majesties. Whereas angels, who are greater in might and power, do not bring a reviling judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like unreasoning animals, born as creatures of instinct to be captured and killed, reviling where they have no knowledge, will end the destruction of those creatures also be destroyed, suffering wrong as the wages of doing wrong. They count it a pleasure to revel in the daytime. Their stains and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions as they carouse with you, having eyes full of adultery that never cease from sin, enticing unstable souls and having a heart trained in greed, they are accursed children." Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray, having followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. But he received a rebuke for his own transgression, for a mute donkey, speaking with the voice of a man, restrained the madness of the prophet. This is the word of God. May he write it upon our hearts. You may be seated. Now join with me and let's go before the Lord in prayer. Our God most high, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You, Lord, are high and mighty, glorious in power, majestic in strength. You are, as the angels cry out before you, holy, 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 for the whole earth is full of your glory. Lord, there are none to whom you can be compared. There are none who are like you. You are worthy and deserving of all honor and glory and praise. Father, we thank you for the glorious hope of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thank you that you made him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that by his wounds we can be healed. Thank you that he bore our sin in his body while he hung on the tree. 
Thank you that the certificate of our debt, the certificate of our sins was nailed to him as he hung on the cross. Lord, we thank you that as he hung, as he was nailed, as he was pierced, that he bore a wrath that we could never bear. Wrath that is upon us for all of eternity if we don't come to him in faith and repentance. Thank you not only that he bore that wrath, but that he cried out, It is finished. His work is done. The price has been paid. The people of Christ are ransomed. What a glorious and mighty Savior. Lord, as we turn our attention to your word this morning, we understand that we are looking at a difficult topic, a topic that is not pleasant to address in our day and age. But Lord, it's necessary for the purity of your bride, the church, that we understand the nature and the work of false teachers. It's necessary for the sake of the washing and cleansing and purification of the church that you died to save, that we must know those are false, we must identify them, and we must resist them. So Lord, with that in mind, I pray, I ask, and I beg that your Holy Spirit would come and help us in this time. Lord, as we have looked at this topic for a number of weeks, it can be easy to become dull of hearing, Lord, I pray that you would give us attentive and humble hearts. Give us eyes that see and ears that hear, that we might be ready and humble and eager to receive and apply the truth. Or not just that we point fingers to identify those who are false, but that we examine our own lives. Pray that your word would do this great work where your spirit cuts us open and measures us against the truth. And Lord, would you show us where we have failed you? Would you show us where we are sinful and missing the mark and breaking your commands? Then Lord, by your grace, would you draw us to repentance? By your grace, through the power of your spirit and the truth of your word, would you transform our hearts and our lives, conforming us to the image of Christ? the chief shepherd, the good shepherd. Lord, would you help us to not be distracted this morning as we sit under the authority of your holy word. Pray that your spirit would move freely and powerfully in us. Thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit who is a teacher. He illuminates and enlightens our hearts to the truth. He's a helper. He's a comforter. Lord, by your spirit and for your glory, would you sanctify us in the truth? Your word is truth. Would you show us Christ? Would you reveal his glory through the preaching and teaching of your word? May we look upon our Savior. May we be conformed to his perfect and righteous and glorious image. We ask and pray all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. So to reset, reset the, the stage, Peter has again just, he's just gone in wide open on, on false teachers. He has spent this time just to clearly and plainly identify them. He has shown us that they are deceptive as they seek to exploit the church. They are, as we'll see in the text today, they are bold in their sin. They're daring and self-willed, the text tells us. And, and then in the passage we'll look at, Lord willing, next week, we see that they seek to entice others. While they themselves are enslaved to sin, they seek to entice others to come and join them as they live in blatant unrebellion and blatant rebellion against the Lord. 
You get the sense as you read this chapter that Peter is a little bit overwhelmed. He is seeing these attacks that are coming upon the bride of Christ, and he is stirred up. He, he understands, he trusts, and, and, is, and even what he's written has shown us that he knows that the Lord will keep us in Christ. We saw last week that he preserves the righteous, and, and so Peter knows that. But he is provoked in, in seeing and hearing of these attacks of the false teachers against the bride of Christ. His distaste for these heretics is, is really palpable. You, you, can, you can hear it. You can taste it. You can feel it. Peter is, is doing all he can, and by the Holy Spirit's working in him, it is, it is a great work that he does to guard and to protect the church against false teachers. An example of his shepherding and pastoral love is what we saw last time in verses 4 through 10, where he talked about the preservation of the righteous, and he talked about how the wicked would be kept and preserved for their judgment to be poured out upon them in full. That was Peter's heart as a shepherd, showing these dear sheep that they would be protected by the chief shepherd. And really, with that in mind, we can focus our minds on Christ before we dig into the text. So we see that these false teachers are described as being self-willed. That is really the root sin of these false teachers, that they are self-willed, that they are pushed by the promotion of self. And as you think about that, you understand that Jesus Christ, our Savior, is the exact antithesis of what these false teachers are. So firstly and foremost, we must consider our Savior. He was driven not to accomplish his own desires. He said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. My desire, my will, my greatest joy, Christ said, is to do and to accomplish the will of the Father. We look to that and we follow that example. The sin that most plagues our world today, again, because it really is a root sin, is this idea of being self-willed. And, and our weapon, our fight against that, is the good news of the gospel. It is that lives and hearts can be transformed. People can be made new in Jesus Christ. And so as we think about the false teachers here, and, and we'll look at their, their DNA, as we think about this, we must look to Christ. We must follow his example. We must know that he is the medicine to cure the ill. For we can give all of our opinion. We can give the philosophies of men. We can come up with any plan that we so choose and desire. But it's Christ that is the remedy. It's Christ that is the remedy. Consider the example of Christ from Philippians chapter 2. Paul writes there that although Jesus existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, emptied himself. He took on the form of a bond servant, and he was made in the likeness of men. That is the Christ we follow. That is the Christ we proclaim, and that is the Christ who we strive to be like. So as we tie in this idea of, of pointing our minds to Christ with the text before us, I'll give you kind of a, a primary thesis, a primary exhortation that we want to look at in this text. This idea that we must resist destructive temptation of the flesh to pursue self-willed desires. We must resist that, and we do that by walking in sober-minded, Christ-like humility and selflessness. Basically, we take all of the descriptions that we see in verses 10 through 16, and we strive to be the opposite, because that is who and what Christ was. So we walk in sober-minded humility and selflessness. We walk as Christ walked. So let's look at this description of the self-willed destruction of false teachers, We're really looking at, at their DNA and what, what makes them and how we can then identify and resist and reject them. In verses 10 and 11, we'll begin by looking at the bold heart of false teachers, the bold heart 
of false teachers. Peter says that they are daring and self-willed. They do not tremble when they revile angelic majesties, whereas angels who are greater in might and power do not bring a reviling judgment against them before the Lord. So we begin here with, with a bit of a difficult interpretation. Um, there are some different renderings uh, of this passage, of those two verses, and, and we don't know exactly what Peter is pointing to, but the overall point is very, very clear. So I don't want to spend a whole lot of time considering the, this interpretive challenge, but I do want to briefly mention it. So in, in verse 10, it says that they are daring and self-willed. They do not tremble when they revile angelic majesties. That's the NAS translation. The ESV and I believe the LSV render that as glorious ones. It's the Greek word doxa, where we get the word doxology. And so it's translated this idea of angelic majesties or, or glorious ones, powerful ones. And then verse 11 describes these angelic beings, these angels who are greater in might and power than the false teachers. And so the question is, what is Peter getting at there? Is he talking about good on one side and bad on the other? What is he getting at? And again, I think there can be a few different interpretations that still stay in line with the overall goal, the overall point of this. But what I would lean to is that Peter is contrasting the, the heart and the work of false teachers, showing how evil and wicked they are, even compared to fallen angels. So, so you have these fallen angels who are, are wicked. They, they are servants of Satan. And, and Peter says they are greater in might and power, and they don't even bring this reviling judgment against the false teachers before the Lord. Now, that might be because they have no standing to give a judgment before the Lord. But nevertheless, the point Peter's making is that these false teachers are wicked. They are evil. They revile. They are malicious they are slanderers. They are, we could say, fearlessly bold in their sin. So let's look at the description of that to understand, again, what we are up against. Peter begins by saying that they are daring. They're shameless. They're fearless in their sin. That, that should perk our minds a little bit when you look around at the culture today. What do you, what do you see when you look out into the world around us, but a bunch of people who are fearless and shameless in their sin. They live as though there is no judgment coming, and they do it without any sense of shame. They parade their sin for all the world to see, even desiring and requiring and demanding that we celebrate that sin. Paul gives a description of these type people in Romans chapter 3. It says, their feet are, are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. They peddle falsehood. They peddle untruths about God's word, and they do it fearlessly because they don't fear God. Scripture talks broadly about the importance of the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of God marks those who belong to the Lord. This is exactly the primary picture that Peter paints of false teachers. They don't fear God. They are shameless and bold and daring in their sin. They, they don't just walk up to the edge, but they go running headlong through and over the line into their sin, celebrating it all the way. That's the enemy that we face. That is what we are up against. They thumb their noses at the Lord while they profane His name and profane His word. So we can sit on the mountaintop and look down upon these people, and there's a sense in which we do that because we are in Christ and we are not false teachers. But let's take this idea and examine our own hearts. We have the Spirit of God within us. If you are in Christ, you have His Spirit within you. You have His Word given to you to instruct you in the ways of righteousness. I think we can comfortably know that every time you sin, 
you would not be described as a daring, self-willed blasphemer as these false teachers are. But there are times, saint, when you walk into sin, when you walk into temptation and then commit that sin and do it willingly, that this is the exact description of you. You are daring. You are bold. You are fearless in walking in sin. And there's one who is in Christ. That should be sobering. It's a terrifying terrible thing to fall into the hands of an angry God. Thanks be to God in Christ, you will not. But that is the the picture of the wrath and the judgment that the Lord has toward sin. Peter's told us that he, that the Lord has given us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the knowledge of him which is revealed in his word. Christian, you are without excuse. Okay, so let, let, let's stop and think about that. You are without excuse when you sin. There are no ifs, there are no ands, there are no buts, because we have everything pertaining to life and godliness in the Word. So let that weigh heavy on you as you consider your sin. You're without excuse. But being without excuse, friend, remember that you are not without advocate you have no excuse but you have a savior you have christ the just and the righteous if we confess our sins he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness so you have this this great balance to hold and to understand you're without excuse you you can You can never say anything to justify your own sin. Praise be to God, you are not without a Savior. You stand before the Holy One, washed in the precious blood of Christ. These false teachers, they are daring. Then Peter says that they are self-willed. They're self-willed. We talked about this uh, a little bit at the beginning, but I want to look a little bit deeper into this idea right now. Uh, Paul, in his letter to Titus, he talks about how this is a disqualifying sin for elders, for pastors. He says that the overseer must not be self-willed, Titus 1, verse 7. Now, what's important to know there is that we are all held to that standard. So the qualifications that the Lord gives for a pastor or for an, an elder are not standards that we as followers of Christ can say, oh, well, that's just for the men who the Lord sets apart. No, that is for every believer. So you as a saint must not be self-willed. Vine's Expository Dictionary, a great tool to understand some of the original language, it pulls no punches when describing and defining this term. Vine's Dictionary says that this one who is self-willed is one who is dominated by self-interest. He's inconsiderate of others and arrogantly asserts his own will. I want to read that again because we want to pick apart a little bit of this idea so we can think about whether or not are we self-willed. It's one who is dominated by self-interest, inconsiderate of others, and arrogantly asserts his own will. That's the question. Are you dominated by self-interest? I hope the definitive answer is no. That should be the answer of one who is in Christ. That no, I'm not dominated by self-interest. But let's think about that definition and ask another question that's going to be a little bit harder to answer. Are you considerate of others? So, so Vine says that one of the definitions is someone who's inconsiderate of others. You know, that's really an either-or proposition. Either you are considerate of others or you're not. Now, we won't be perfect in these matters. So so you may say, yeah, I I strive to be considerate, but I still fail. But it's ultimately an either-or proposition. When it comes down to a situation, do you consider others above yourself? Or do you assert your own will? Do you seek your own pleasure, your own good, your own benefit over that of others. Again, this is what marks um, false teachers. They assert their own will as they seek their own benefit. This is probably 
most easily, most readily apparent in the home. Think about this idea of asserting your own will. It can be in things as simple as what do you want for dinner or, or when things don't go how you want or according to your plan, you just get, you just get angry, you, you get flustered, and you respond out of that anger and frustration. So are you self-willed? Are you considerate of others? Do you assert your own will, your own desire above others? I think this is really the greatest and gravest of sins in our day. It's the easiest of sins to commit because you naturally in the flesh want to pursue that which pleases you. And we must stand firm against that. We must put off the sin of being self-willed and self-consumed and we must strive after the glory of God. You're either, either striving to please yourself or you're striving to please and glorify the Lord. One of the ways that you glorify the Lord is by looking to others over self. That's really one of the most and greatest things that we can do to be like Christ. So there's a third description under this idea of the bold heart of false teachers. They are daring, they are self-willed, and they do not tremble when they revile. They wildly, they boldly, they broadly slander and revile others. Now, don't take those descriptors of being bold and broad in that to think that false teachers will only stand up and publicly identify their slander. No, they'll go quietly from one person to the next and, and just sow these little seeds of, of slander and of reviling, and they do it with malicious intent because, again, they are self-willed and they want to make themselves look good. That's what false teachers do. They, they build themselves up and they tear others down. Often they build themselves up by tearing others down. And they're bold and broad in this. There's a clear and distinguishable difference between the biblically commanded accountability that believers should have together with one another and this idea of, of bold slander and reviling. There's a clear difference between slander and holding one another accountable to the truths of Scripture. One clear line in that is that you are dealing with things that are true. It's hard to slander with truth. It's hard to slander when you're looking for the best interest of another. It's hard to slander when you're looking for the glory of God. False teachers, they're daring, and they're self-willed, and they do not tremble when they revile. Our goal is to be driven by love. It's to be marked by holding to the Scriptures. It's to be known for our faithful and patient accountability with our fellow saints. Paul would say it this way in 1 Timothy, the, the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart, and a good conscience, and a sincere faith. So is that your goal? Is that your desire? Moving forward, the next thing we want to see is the destructive future of false teachers. And we, we won't spend a whole lot of time here, verses 12 and 13, but I want to just kind of put this out before us briefly, the destructive future of false teachers. Peter says, But these, like unreasoning animals, born, of, born as creatures of instinct, to be captured and killed, reviling where they have no knowledge, they will in the destruction of those creatures also be destroyed, suffering wrong as the wages of doing wrong. They are unreasoning animals. They are creatures of instinct. They act only by natural fleshly instincts and desires. That's the outworking of being self-willed. They're so dominated by the passions of their flesh that they act like unreasoning animals. They don't have the, the faculty of common sense and logic. They don't have the faculty of restraint. They don't have the Holy Spirit to help pull them back from their selfish, self-centered 
desires. They blindly follow after the passions of their flesh. This is commonly seen in our world today. Those who just blazingly, blindingly follow after that which brings them pleasure in this very moment. They don't look to tomorrow. They don't look to next week. They certainly don't look to the eternal glory of God. They look to their pleasure in this very moment. Just say this, natural emotions are not helpful. Natural emotions are not good. We should teach and live accordingly that we don't act out of our emotions. We act out of the sanctified work, sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit in our heart. So as you walk with the Lord, as you dwell on that which is good, as the Spirit transforms you and conforms you to the image of Christ, then you act out of that which, in, which is your immediate response because it's flowing out of the Spirit. But when your emotions are fleshly and you need to to examine everything through the lens of is it fleshly or is it biblical, when your emotions are fleshly, they are of no value. What's the result of these animals? They are born as creatures of instinct to be captured and killed. Captured and killed. That is what sin does. That is what temptation does. That is Satan's plan to entrap and to ensnare, to put temptation before you so that at your weakest moment, he can pounce and he will consume you as a lion consumes its prey. Dear friend, know this is your enemy. Be prepared to stand firm. Being trapped by your emotions leads you to being ensnared by sin. Peter says that these people revile where they have no knowledge. The world today tells us that everyone should be able to voice their opinion. Everyone has a voice. It's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that these people are are like brutish animals because they speak where they have no knowledge. Dear friends, understand these attacks of the world and reject them and stand firm against them. You speak authoritatively when you know the truth. You speak authoritatively when you're speaking the truth of God's word. You don't speak authoritatively when it's your own personal opinion. You don't speak authoritatively. Hear this, friends, because this is what our culture wants you to do. You don't speak authoritatively when you don't have the facts. We must reject the ways of the world. So they are captured and killed. They will in destruction of these Creatures be destroyed, and they suffer wrong as the wages of doing wrong. Romans 2.8 says that wrath and indignation await those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey righteousness. They do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness. Punishment is coming for evildoers, and friends, let me tell you again, stress this over and over again, that is not something that you revel in. Dear friend, when you see one who is destined to be condemned, that should break your heart and it should cause you to preach and proclaim the transforming good news of Christ. You you should see this destruction coming and it should cause you to flee from sin, but it should cause you to flee from sin and, and as you're fleeing from sin, you're proclaiming Christ to try to rescue as many as the Lord might would rescue through the gospel of Christ. So the bold heart of false teachers, the destructive future of false teachers, and then thirdly, we want to look at the repulsive nature of false teachers. The repulsive nature of false teachers. Continuing in verse 13, they count it a pleasure to revel 
in the daytime. Their stains and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions as they carouse with you, having eyes full of adultery that never cease from sin, enticing unstable souls, having a heart trained in greed, accursed children. Some strong wording, their their repulsive nature, but that should be how you feel when you read this description of false teachers. You should be repulsed. You, you You should be made physically ill when you think about this work of those who claim to be in Christ, who claim to have a high knowledge of Christ, and then they lead people astray. They entice them to become enslaved to sin. That should make you physically sick. It's repulsive. Note what Peter says about these people. They count it a pleasure to revel in the daytime. They can't even wait to the night to do their bidding. Now, you just think about this. Think about what Scripture says about people who are in sin and darkness. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 7 says, Those who get drunk, get drunk at night. John 3 gives this idea that those who are in darkness don't want the light because to their darkened mind, being in the darkness helps to hide their sin. So there's that little sense of reason where they don't want their sin to be seen and found out. Peter says these false teachers are so bold, they take so much pleasure that they revile and they revel in their sin in the day. They want their sin to be seen. Because they revel in being wicked. They're so impulsive. They're so driven by the pleasures of the flesh. They can't even wait till nighttime. To be impulsive, friends, while there are areas in life where being impulsive is, is not sinful, by and large, when it comes to things of spiritual nature, to be impulsive is, is not wise. It's something that we should be very careful with because there's so much sin around us in the world. There's so much wickedness. We still have this body of death, this body of sin attached to us, and so your impulse might not be righteous. You need to be trained in godliness. You need to be spirit-led. You need to be measured in how you act and how you respond. Peter continues, these are, they are stains and blemishes. They are spots and wrinkles and that which is a disgrace and an insult to others. But I think this phrase really ties in best with the rest uh, of that verse, verse 13. They are stains and blemishes reveling in their deceptions as they carouse with you. Now, carouse in verse 13, this is two terms in, in, this, in this text that you might get a better feel for them in other translations. So most of the major translations have corrals here rendered as feast. As feast. And so it's the idea of feasting and fellowshipping together. So let's read that again with that in mind. They are stains and blemishes reveling in their deceptions as they feast with you. Who is Peter writing to? He's writing to the church. He's writing to those who are in Christ, the the purchased bride of Christ, those who are washed in his blood and called out from the world. And Peter says these false teachers, they are stains and blemishes as they sneak their way into your fellowship, as they come in among you with their deceptiveness and, and they live with you and they push and propagate their falsehoods. Peter says they're a stain, they're a spot, they're a blemish. They're that which is ugly and insulting. These false people are the polar opposite of Christ's people. Yes, we we have our stains and our spots. We, We have our past of sin, but we're washed. We're new in Christ. So these are the exact opposite. We are being purified to be the bride who is who is given to Christ on that final day. And yet these are stains and spots and blemishes. See to it, church, that should false teachers arise among you, 
This is a charge to the church of Jesus Christ. The false teachers arise among you. You identify them, you resist them, you reject them, and you put them out. That is our response as Christ's bride. Now, you do that with love and with patience and with gentleness. You do that proclaiming the gospel of Christ, but you put them out. The church should not tolerate false teachers. We should not allow those who are false to feel comfortable, to feel at home among us. Yeah, we are to be welcoming and to be hospitable. But those who are false, those who revel in their falsehood and sin, should not be comfortable around God's people. Our lives should be such polar opposites that they are uncomfortable and they realize that we are completely different and we're not falling prey to their traps. Verse 14 continues this description of their repulsive nature. They have eyes that are full of adultery that never cease from sin. And entice unstable souls having a heart that is trained in greed. They are accursed children. They're full of adultery. They never cease to sin. And what should really, really press us here is this idea that they seek to entice unstable souls. It's what false teachers do. They go after those who are not steadfast in Christ. They go after those who are not mature in Christ, those who are still spiritual babes. They seek to attack those who do not know much better. They seek to grab them and pull them into their sinful ways, to bring them down into the mud and into the muck with them. They're so driven by the lust of their flesh that they see, here's the easy opportunity. Here's one who is new in Christ and who has come from a path and a, has a past of great sin, and they go after that one. They go after that one with the very sins that that person has come out of. They'll do so often in the name of Christian liberty. doesn't mean that liberties are sinful, but it's one of the great tools of false teachers. Peter says that they are trained in greed. There's a point where we can apply to ourselves. Do you struggle with contentness? Do you struggle to be content? Do you struggle to, to desire the pleasure of the world and not be content in your devotion to Christ? You're always looking to fulfill more desires for things of this world. And things, I broadly mean things. Do you desire to amass for yourself the things and the pleasures of this world? Or do you desire to glorify the Lord, to be devoted to Christ? We need to examine ourselves there. We need to repent. If we are not content in our devotion to Christ, you need to repent. You need to ask the Lord to give you a, a greater desire and a greater contentment in Christ. Peter says they are accursed children. They are, as we read in Ephesians chapter 2, sons of disobedience. They are sons of Satan. The plainest mark of false teachers is that they are like their father to the devil, who is the father of lies. False teachers are deceitful, they're deceptive. And they are liars. You find someone who struggles to tell the truth, you find someone who very well may be a false teacher. So they have bold hearts, they have a destructive future, they have a repulsive nature. And then Peter, in verses 15 and 16, gives us this sobering example of a false teacher, a sobering example of a false teacher. He says, They have forsaken the right way. They have gone astray, they have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. But Balaam, he received a rebuke for his own transgressions, for a mute donkey, speaking with the voice of a man, restrained the madness of the prophet. Now, if we had time, we could go read through Numbers, um, Numbers 22 through 24, and, and see more about the story. Balaam, he was... A prophet of the Lord, he would 
speak on behalf of the Lord and he could pronounce curses, he could pronounce blessings even on entire nations. If you just briefly, quickly read through Numbers 22 through Numbers 22 through 24, you, you might walk away thinking, hey, Balaam is a faithful prophet because he continually says, oh, I will only speak that which the Lord allows, that which the Lord commands. But he's not remembered as a faithful prophet. Numbers 31, verse 16, it says, The women of Midian caused the sons of Israel through the counsel of Balaam to trespass against the Lord in the matter of Peor. So despite repeatedly saying, yeah, I will only say what the Lord says, I will only do what the Lord tells me to do, you see that Balaam was destroyed by Israel because he was a false prophet. He was slaughtered by the people because he was unwilling to reject falsehood. He was unwilling to protect the Lord's people and really to stand up for what the Lord commanded. Peter gives a, a fitting description. He says that he loved the wages of unrighteousness. He would constantly go back before the Lord to see if the Lord might change his mind about what Balaam would prophesy to the people. Because he had all these people coming with all these different ideas and Balaam wanted more things, more money, more power, more prestige. And so he was always back before the Lord, seeing if the Lord would allow him to do that which would earn him more authority, a better standing with the people. MacArthur summarizes that if God had not intervened on Israel's behalf, Balaam would have willfully sinned for his own material profit. So with this as the example that Peter gives us, I think we can kind of narrow down and say that the clearest and most common mark of false teachers is that they're driven by greed. They're driven by the desire to have more, to get more, to earn more, to have more authority. They are driven, they are self-willed, and then they are driven to have more. It's what marked Balaam. It's what marks the false teachers of our day. Now to zero back in on some application here, just think about this. You may not want to curse the Lord's people, but are you constantly giving sin? Are you constantly giving temptation an opportunity? Do you rest in your battle against sin? Do you let the sun go down upon your anger against sin? As the Proverbs would picture, do you constantly walk by the house of the harlot in hopes that you don't fall prey to her schemes? Dear friends, part of what marked Balaam is that he was always willing to go back. He was always willing to hear more, to see if he could earn and gain more. Ultimately, earn and gain more pleasure. Are you the same as Balaam? Really, to, to summarize, uh, to work to a conclusion, what we learn from this picture of false teachers is that their sin is grossly ugly. Again, repulsive, I, I think, is a, is a good word. Their sin is grossly ugly, and what we must understand is that some don't set out to end up so deep into sin. Some don't set out to, they don't decide, oh, hey, I'm going to be a false teacher for all that I can gain doing that. But friends, let's be sober-minded. Let's realize this is what sin does. When you give yourself repeatedly to sin and to temptation, it ensnares you and it entraps you. You need to be freed from the power of sin in and through Christ Jesus. That's the remedy. That's the medicine is that you come to Christ in faith and repentance. Christ gives you new life. His spirit comes to live in you and those sins that you used to walk in, you no longer desire. You have the power to resist. 
You have the power to stand firm. And over time, the, the Lord transforms even those things that you desire. You go from wanting sin to desiring that which pleases the Lord. You don't remain where you were. Evil people, as we'll see next time, Lord willing, seek to entice you into the very sin that enslaves them. What is our response? James chapter 4. Submit therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. You see the ugliness, the sin in the world. This must be your response. You submit to God. You resist the devil. You draw near to God. You cleanse your hands and you purify your hearts. You humble yourselves before the Almighty. This is our response to sin. You must resist the destructive temptation of the flesh be self-willed and pursue selfish desires. And we do that by walking in sober-mindedness, by pursuing Christ-likeness, by pursuing humility, and by being selfless just as Christ was. Draw near to God. He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands. Purify your hearts humble yourselves before the almighty hand of God and he will exalt you and he will do that for his glory let's pray father we come and we ask that you would write your word upon our hearts lord I ask that you would help us to identify that which is sinful that which does not please you and glorify you I pray that you would give us humble hearts Pray that you would give us discernment, Lord, the ability to identify that which is sin and that which is evil. And pray that you would give us the strength to resist. Lord, write your word upon our hearts. Pray that your truth would cause us to stand firm in evil and wicked days. Thank you for Christ. I thank you for our eternal hope that is in him and him alone. And we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.